the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024, these are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. There were a lot of different ska bands in the 90s who each had their own interpretation of the genre, but only one band that we're aware of worshipped the devil, Mephiscopheles, which by the way is the greatest ska pun of all time, were quite an interesting band, even aside from the whole being a satanic ska band and dubbing their debut album God Bless Satan. They mixed wild experimental music and jazz elements with traditional ska grooves even going so far as to have an upright bass to maintain the walking bass sound of the Scottalites. And even though they didn't actually worship the devil, they did blow a lot of minds at their concerts, including mine back in 1995. For this episode, we brought on three members that were in the group in the 90s and continue to play in the band to this day. Singer Andre Worrell, bassist Michael Bitts, and trombonist Greg Robinson. Growing up in a religious household, how would a Mephiscopheles record been received if your mom found it while cleaning up your room? Um, I'm sure she would have been upset. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did have God Bless Satan when I lived at my parents' house. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. Did you have to hide it? I mean, I probably hid it, but you know, I, I don't remember feeling like it was actually satanic. Right. But I, I knew that, like, the way the imagery on it would have, like, gotten her upset if she saw it. I remember going with you to see Mephiscopheles at the Cactus Club. Mm -hmm. And I was expecting something, like, much more over the top. Yeah. Much more, like, overtly, like, theatrically satanic. Yeah. And it wasn't that at all. Nah. I mean, they're musically interesting. Mm -hmm. And they, they have, like, kind of an intense persona on stage. But it's, yeah, it's not, it's not they play into the satanic stuff in a much more subtle way. Yeah. It's not like venom. Yeah. It's not like, you know, all this like crazy stage banter. And it's not like, I mean, there are a few songs that where it is part of the content, but it's not every song. I mean, it's just a couple. Yeah. But they, uh, it's good band. I was excited that we got to talk about not just their God bless Satan debut record, which I think is probably their more popular record, but we got to talk a little bit more about their two records that came after, which are, 
Interesting. And then they, they went in an interesting direction. Yeah. I'm stoked for everybody to hear this conversation. All right. So we have uh, three members of Mephiscopheles here. Why don't we just uh, just go around real quick, just everyone say who's who's here, what instrument you play, and then we'll, we'll go forward. All right. This is Greg Robinson, and I play trombone in Mephiscopheles. Right, this is my bit, and I play upright bass. This is the grilly vocals. So I want to say October 2020, uh, you guys started doing uh, seances on uh, Patreon. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. I assume this was a thing you're doing uh, uh, for COVID because there's nothing, no live shows. Yeah. So it's uh, not only to keep the fans engaged, but to keep ourselves engaged in the band. There's little videos out there kind of teasing it. And there's like clips of, uh, you know, like insane religious people talking and, and possessed people. So can, can we actually find out what a Mephiscopheles seance is like? Um, it, it varies month to month, but, um, the basic format is like a variety format where we have, uh, different members do different segments, mm-hmm. vary from musical segments and, uh, master classes to, um, to examinations of the stuff they do outside of the band. Uh, like our guitar player, Adam, who is a scooter mechanic on the side or in his in his real life i guess and uh and um also races motorcycles and things like that so we have just different segments that give you a multiple views of the band basically i see yeah Yeah, and also archival stuff uh old videos and 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 music from the archives that has never been heard before you know live recordings things like that um, so you can hear the band in all its different phases. Nice, yeah. So these like little monthly get-togethers with the with the the hardcore fans. Yeah, more or less a fan club concept where they subscribe and they get uh, exclusive merch before anyone else, you know, and um, they get access to this to the full archive of all the seances, so they can go back and look at all the shows that we've put together um, over the co- last couple of years. They get to know the band in, in, in a different way. It's, it's more of, I guess, a, a closer light because they get to see and, and uh, experience w- with a sort of ideas that drive the band forward. And, and they get to, like Greg said, experience, you know, past aspects of the band as far as performances and stuff go, which, you know, some of them might not have uh, ever seen or heard before. So it's it's a way of of you know just to reiterate it's a way of keeping touch with the fans and a, a way of just um, bringing them into you know the life of the band. I want I just want to add like like a lot of ska bands we're very close with our fans we we uh, rely on the fans to give us feedback and to inspire us um, to to push this thing forward to move forward stylistically and to just keep impress trying to impress our fans basically and it's been that way for the whole history of the band so this is again yeah just a way for us to have a deeper connection to the fans and vice versa so um last year there was a there was this loudwire article about you guys yes mm-hmm. satanic ska is a real thing that actually existed uh, 
seemed out of nowhere to me, but uh, I feel like I saw that uh, getting shared everywhere. I think like the thing that about it is that um, it cracked me up is that it was, even though the article, it, it's clear the article's familiar with you, the way it was presented and the way people, some of the people were receiving it was very like literal, like, like satanic ska band. I mean, and I also think it's funny because you guys have been around for several decades. <laughs> that kind of like weird shock about a satanic ska band. Was that, what was that like for you guys when that, that was going around? Uh, we were surprised also that, that this popped up. Uh, I don't think it fully went viral. I mean, it, it, it did get shared a lot though. And um, I, we, we liked the article when it came out, actually. We felt like, okay, someone, someone gets what we're doing and wants to tell other people about it. Good. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, you know, it's not straight viral, like you said, but I did see, like I was saying, I did see it kind of go outside of the ska circle, you know, the ska kind of everybody sharing the ska article. I think that's what uh, kind of was intrigued me about it. Yeah. As well, it should. I mean, I mean, we're a total novelty on the music scene at large, you know, there's nothing else like us really, (laughs) let alone in the ska scene, but not anywhere, you know? So, you know, it's unique. So it's remarkable therefore, you know, I guess. Have you guys had any sort of interactions with people who have been, um, you know, over the top with their reaction to, to your band, either positively or negatively? Uh, the last one I had was, uh, I guess we were on the, uh, the streetlight tour and I don't remember the, um, the club and or the city at this point, but, um, we had some fans that I was talking to after and they were pretty, um, they were into the band, but at the same time, they seemed pretty fucking freaked out. And uh, <laughs> so we, we had a discussion about the ideal concept of uh, Satan and they were full grown adults. And I sort of had to break the idea and concept that we have behind it, especially my take on the whole thing. And they were, well, they were also freaked out by that. And um, the, it ended up being, well, Satan. Satan is really, you know. And at that point of the discussion, after having a very clear, you know, coaching discussion leading up to that point, their reactions to my answers to their question was, but he is real. And that's when I had to be, Oh, I think I need to go pack some stuff up because the gig's over. And, uh, <laughs> Tell us your uh, concept, like you know, the what did you say to them to explain the concept to them? Well, I was just trying to tell them that hey, um, you know, we have this big Christian, although it's not supposed to, but it is, and it's everywhere, and in some in some cases historically and today, it's in some ways a type of. Uh, thumb on your back or on your head and um under which most people stand some gladly do that and we sort of like pushing back taking the piss showing the cracks in that armor and they weren't hearing it at all you know i guess it's because that's just how even though they they love the band or maybe like the band or love the music love the joy the music of the band yeah at the same time, when you start talking to them about it and they bring the questions up and you give them a reply, a response, it's not kind of what they want. I think what they were hoping for was more of a, um, a jolly ha-ha-ha. And it's, uh, 
it's a bit more than that. I mean, that is included. It's a, you know, yeah, there is some tongue cheek shit there, but I mean, let's be real. Satan as, as a real entity, they were like, you know, not ready to have, to have that, uh, thrown out the window. I think people are naturally very, very superstitious, you know, and they're put there. They, it makes them nervous. You know, when you come out there and you're making, you're making light of something that, that they are very superstitious about. And, um, but getting back to your original question, um, as far as the react over the top reactions, I got to say, like, as far as positive over the top reactions, we are getting that every single night at the gigs. And I'm talking about people who, people who first heard our music when they were 10 or 11 years old, never got a chance to see the band live. And this is every night, multiple people like this coming up. And, I mean, ecstatic, buying everything on the merch table. I mean, like, um, if you, the thing about our music is it's really not for everybody, but if the people who love it really, really love it, love it. <laughs> I remember probably what, maybe a decade ago or something around there, there was like the, uh, started hearing about the satanic temple, which is not the same thing as the Anton LaVey's, you know, Church of Satan. Yeah. We, we have no connection to either of those organizations. Yeah, yeah. But the, the idea of the Satanic Temple was that wasn't that Satan was real. It was more similar to what Andre was saying. It's the idea that like pushing back on the fact that like our country is supposed to be not religious, but it's very Christian. And it's like kind of like an antagonistic way of being atheist. So, but I mean, that's not, that was never factored into the concept of the band, right? For us, it's, you know, really more about uh, having a great time every night. You know, for a lot of religious people, you wait until the end of your life to have a great time if you were good. If you're bad, you're going to have a really bad time. <laughs> uh, we're about having a good time every night here on this earth. And in a way, that's really what Satan represents for us, you know, having the party right here, right now and uh, bringing it to the people, bringing it to the fans and having them enjoy it with us that is the true indulgence of Mephiscopheles but but it is it does relate to what you're talking about Aaron about American freedom and all that stuff because it's freedom for everybody right not just for for the select few we're supposed to we're supposed to all enjoy freedom so sure so I I saw you guys play um it had to be like 95 I think because I live I'm here in California I know that um, I know your first record was already released. Your second record was not released yet. And I saw you play at the Cactus Club in San Jose, I think. I don't know if that rings a bell. You've played so many shows. Sure. Yeah, sure. Cactus Club. Do you recall who we played with? Do you recall who else was played? Was it Buck 09 or? Uh, I don't remember who you played with, but I do. I do. The, the, your opening song is burned into my brain. Because you guys played the song Mephiscopheles. Yep. The whole song, the like, particularly the end part where you do the um, you know, the count or the count, you know, the six and then the six, six, six. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just my brain was just when I was watching that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's 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 what we wanted to have happen. Amazing. <laughs> I was also at that show, and the thing, you know, when you usually think about satanic music. You know, you think of bands like, you know, Venom or Slayer. And so I I hadn't heard you guys at all. I just came along with the rest of Aaron's band. Mm-hmm. 
expecting like this really kind of violent, scary sound. And then it was, it was really nice ska. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, do you guys ever, ever get that sort of perception where, you know, people are expecting one thing and then they show up and they are pleasantly surprised. That's what we're all about really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The whole history of the band right there. Yeah. I, don't, I think it would be, if there was anybody who had um, envisioned exactly what you are, like if they were just, the band was described to them and then they actually envisioned exactly what you are. That's probably the, that would be interesting if that ever happened. I mean, you got to remember, we've been around as a band since 1991. So yeah. we're kind of a, a known entity by now, but, but, but it still happens. People still get dragged to the show by their friends or they, they say, Oh, I found the CD. I really liked it. So I had to come to the show and check it out. And, and, and their minds are blown that way, you know, like, just seeing us for the first time ever um, does have that effect on people sometimes <laughs> yeah. where they just go, just lose their minds. And I guess it's because there's so much music. I mean, we really pack yeah. a lot of actual music. Yeah. Into, I mean, it's not just a beat and some, you know, three major chords or whatever. It's, it, this is music that we're playing. And um, it's a lot to take in, honestly, for some people. Yeah. And I think that's, that goes a long way to explaining why we're, as as our drummer says, we're not a supermarket; we're a delicatessen. You know. Yeah, yeah. Let's so. talk. Let's talk about some of those elements. Um, let's talk. Okay, let's start with the horns. Um, your horns are very, very unique. That's right. Tell me a little. I know. I know. There's like. I know. There's jazz. Uh, like there's jazz education in the behind the the horn players. Is that true? Uh, well, in the sense that. Uh, the original bass player, as well as Al McCabe and Osho, were all students at Manhattan School of Music. So yeah, to that extent, yeah. But it's more coming out of the New York City jazz scene in general. Yeah, that everybody was trying to be part of at that time. And so they just landed in Scott, your band, instead. <laughs> well, it was a process. I mean, the the core of it formed. Then they got they put out an ad in the paper to get the bass. You know, they said upright bass player needed, and then he had the connection to these other jazz cats and then yeah and so that's basically how that happened the me the, the melodies that the horn players write and mm -hmm. um the the way that they sound like they don't sound out of tune but they sound like there's something that's like unique to the way they play with each other can you can you just talk about that at all uh well i mean it depends on the tune obviously it depends on which cut you're talking about but um I mean, we, you know, we, we harmonize a lot of the stuff on the early, on the first record and some of the stuff on the second record, we, there, nothing was written down. In other words, we just made up our parts over many, many rehearsals and many, many gigs, mm -hmm. you know? So we arrived at some unorthodox harmonies that way. Um, yeah. The harmonies are, are, are interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, some of that just evolved sort of in the rehearsal room like what sounded good at the time and then we just stuck with it tried to remember it and stuck with it later uh, for the sec for maximum perversion we started to bring charts in and so guys would actually harmonize the line like for example uh attack of the geniuses the first song on maximum perversion mm -hmm. are you familiar with that one yeah like um you know that was all written out by al mccabe like the 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 horn solely part in the middle where the horns all play the same line 
it was all written out. So he, so he figured out the harmonies in advance and figured out what he wanted to do. And he was, and he was quite an advanced musician, you know, at that time. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's both. It's some of the jazz education that you're referring to. And, and it's also just whatever worked in the studio. Because we were basically a live band all the time. We just worked a lot of stuff out in the rehearsal room. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And like, like you, you were saying earlier too, the, um, if you listen to section to section, it's like, it's pretty complicated. It isn't just like one section, three chords, chorus, you know, three different chords. Right. No. Yeah. I mean, it's not particularly complicated, but it is different from, we're taking it at a, at a different angle than other bands. Basically we're, we're coming at more of a jazz angle bringing in a lot of diverse influences that were happening in New York city at the time the band was really forming. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you name some of those influences? Well, number one, the Scatolites, nice. number two, the Scoplaws. Okay. I mean, that's just for the ska, but that those, both those bands were extremely active in New York in the early nineties. Yeah. And we, we saw them a lot and we played on the same bills with them. Yeah. The uh, Scatolites um, relocated to New York in like their late eighties. Is that right? Yeah. And they Correct. yeah, they got really got going in like in like the early nineties again as a live outfit. They that's right. And they were they were playing all the time and it and it was very affordable for us to go to the shows. And, and the Scofflaws, uh, they'd been around since like the mid eighties. Um, but they were called um the New Bohemians. The New Bohemians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they sold they uh they sold their name to Edie Brickell for <laughs> I think a few hundred bucks or something. <laughs> That's a fact. I think it was a thousand bucks. And so, um, but you know, they became they were a little bit different of a band in those days, anyway. So they became more that sort of jazzy sound as they progressed. Yeah, they had two peaks, really, like the early peak and then the the later one when Buford was kind of at the fore. Mm -hmm. But in the early days, it was the front line was uh, Richie Brooks on tenor, Buford on trombone. Paul Gephardt on alto and Mike Drantz on very saxophone and second vocal. And that was just a killer, killer lineup. Along with Victor Rice, our, our guru and mentor in many ways. Yeah, we used to open for them a lot in the early days, in the very early days. And uh, they were really an inspiration. I would say we were also in some um, um, bucket, Buckets band also. Uh, Toasters? Oh, oh, God, you're admitting this. <laughs> you're, you're admitting this i i mean i know it's true absolutely the toasters they were big influence now they i mean the tempos everything well well an influence as in as in um they were they were like at the time the new york city uh ska band so i mean yes we would go see a lot of shows and stuff and uh, i mean i don't know if it was a straightforward um you know influence where you maybe uh, were willing to try pick here their kind of thing it was just what you were into and what you heard i mean it's, it's the same for the the scatterlights i mean well the scatterlights are a little different because it's the fucking scatterlights but um yeah i guess i guess you know subconsciously subconsciously there was influence from you know those three places as far as the ska music was but then you also had you know some of the the other uh bands too that people were into you know from from uh the english angle so it, it's yeah. it's a bit of it's a bit of everything but it's also uh just 
us as people going to different types of shows and liking different types of music and wanting to have something that wasn't going to be uh, a run-of-the-mill sort of sound within the ska scene and was and and uh, as run-of-the-mill as being like what was you know generally I guess happening with all the other bands nothing that's not to take anything from them I mean we played with them we used to hang out go to the shows but also you wanted to just separate yourself from that and also separate yourself from the current past uh, history from you know like I said across the pond those bands and uh, being conscious of doing of of wanting to make such a statement, I think is kind of what gave the band its, its unique sort of a place and oomph at the beginning. I, w- I want to add something about the, what Andre is saying about the toasters and the influences and stuff. Is When I came in the band, which is a little after Andre, I was already in the band, like what I got from them was, was that they wanted to displace the toasters as the top ska <laughs> band in New York City, which we ultimately did. Yeah, but yes, that's... but um, but but that was I didn't know much about the toasters. I didn't know much about ska in general. I had played two gigs with City Beat. That was my ska resume when I joined Memphis Gophelies, and and uh, but I got from them that like these guys, the toasters, these are the top dogs, but they are yesterday's news, and we're gonna <laughs> topple them, and we're gonna be the number one band in New York. And that was very that was that was a real a real feeling within the band. Yeah, to motivate. For, mo- for motivation, you know. Because when I read uh, Mark Wasserman's book, I think there was a part where it was like, yeah, Scofflaws, they are the uh, they are the band. They are the big influence. You know, we wouldn't be a band without them. And the Toasters, they're yesterday's news or something like that. <laughs> and yet the Scofflaws were not in the third wave movie. Nope. What's up with that? What's up with that? Completely omitted. Yeah. I mean, I think... Um, you know, they're one of those bands, I think, that uh, not they didn't quite reach everybody, you know, you know, they, yeah. especially if you weren't uh, based out of New York or if you weren't like a, a Moon Records aficionado. It's like writing the history of baseball and leaving out Ty Cobb or something. No, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, that first record in particular is one of the best, uh, I would say, one of the best 90s ska records out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. no doubt. Yep. We'll be right back after this. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Let's talk about the beginning of the band. So we, the band starts, well, okay, so before the band starts, there's a band, there's a hardcore band called The Shaved Pigs. Who, who was in that band? That band was uh, Brendan. Um, I can't remember what the players in that band. Uh, Andy, uh, Ron, 
that guy Peter was in the band. I, I don't know any of these people's last names. Yeah, I don't remember their last names, but I, I, I know the band. I know the players from that band. Some of the names are escaping me now. Um, but anyway, they were they were a New York, uh, you know, hardcore band. And then a couple of those members, like they started, they wanted to start a ska band. No, that, oh, the only person was that I, I was uh, Brendan. Oh, so it's just Brendan. Okay. And um, so then there's, um, I know you're kind of, under, you're kind of in the very, very first version of this new ska band, which is originally called uh, Scatterbrain. Yes. It was called Scatterbrain for a very specific reason. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> what was the reason? Uh, the reason was that um, I had done a logo and uh, it was basically a rude boy's head exploding. So it was Scatterbrain. <laughs> And we were just trying to, uh, you know, put our own stamp on on shit. You know, like I said before, you know, we love that music and stuff, but we don't want to necessarily, you know, put ourselves within that category. We wanted to be more than just, you know, another band that's um, basing themselves on uh, the the checkerboard um, ideology, basically. So then, uh, the the problem with the the name was that there was another band called scatterbrain yeah yeah okay so then you go obviously the next name is going to be mephiscopheles close enough yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's funny i mean if someone if, if someone comes up with that name you pretty much have to name the band that. you have to you're not going to come up with anything better than that and and that band that that name was good because i remember sitting and we were all coming up with names and uh that totally makes sense because of, of uh, not just wanting to be a ska, ska band, you know, you like a lot of music, you like a lot of rock and roll music and stuff. So that makes sense. You know, it was perfect. I love that you, um, you, you want, you want to be ska band, but you want to be different. So you incorporate the whole ska pun name, but yeah. you do it in a way that probably no one would do. Well, I mean, you got to remember, uh, I mean, there weren't as many bands with ska pun names then as there are now. Sure, yeah. I mean, we we were basically looking at the Scatolites and going, "Oh, well, they did it, so <laughs> I guess anyone anyone can do it," you know. No, it, I Memphis Scoffley's best ska pun band name, hands down. Oh, for sure. You, you're not you're not going to do better. No one name your band a ska pun going forward because you're not Memphis Scoffley's. <laughs> <laughs> were, were there any other also a curse though in that um we have been called memphis copolies and people have been asking us if we're from memphis you know, just play them. seriously like no joke yeah how often do people mess up your name often <laughs> <laughs> how often is it just Mephistopheles? i can't you know i can't even say the real one mephistopheles mephistopheles yeah i got mephistopheles hardly burned in ever. my brain hardly, hardly ever. ever okay it's mostly um, more iterations of weird spellings of yeah. this wild name. Yeah. Um, so, Mike and Greg, when do you join the band? I joined in uh, mid '91. I joined in um, about '92 to '93 when the original bass player Vitell, my friend, um, moved on to other things. I would just say that um, you know the upright bass has always been at the core of Mephiscopheles because the ska music was created on that instrument. And we are very 
close and dear to the origin origins of the sound and so it's always been very important to us and it's always been very important to me as well yeah that that's really interesting because like on one hand you um want to you know you want to push the genre forward and you want to do it in a way that it hasn't been done before but you are um you find that the use of an upright bass is an important part of the tradition that you want to uphold yes yes very much so it defines the rhythm of the band i mean the walking baseline is is core to what we're doing yeah as it, as it was with the scatolites exactly the scat it, that that's the other thing the scatolites that we totally all you know look to they created something that was you know totally unique so as a band why wouldn't you want to try to do that yourself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah no because i like i like how there's like there is a um you have that ska bounce but um yeah there's that there's the the modern kind of weird jazzy stuff there's the um there's a little bit of a sometimes a menacing vibe to the yeah, the the, the chords you choose. This is not stuff Scottalites would do. Some of the you know some of the ways you write the music and stuff, but um, that bounce is there. But the Scottalites did write a lot in minor key. That's true. Yeah, a lot in, yeah, a, yeah. in a minor key, which a lot of modern ska bands don't. You know, because it turn they think it's going to turn the audience off. Well, we, we don't believe that. You know, we think it's just part of music. Sure. Yeah, that's um. Yeah, Don Drummond was basically wrote everything that he wrote in the minor key. Yeah. And he wrote most of the music. So there you go. <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to ask really quick, just backing up a little bit around the name Mephiscopheles. You guys said you were bouncing around other names. Do you guys remember any of the other names that you didn't use? Um, no. None. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Andre's the only one who could answer that. There. All right. And as of right, as of right now, uh, no. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. All good. What would the ska scene look like uh, in New York in like 91, 92, when you guys were in the early phase? Like, I understand that there was an 80s New York scene. Yes. A lot of those bands um, broke up or moved on to other styles. You know, a few of them, like the Toasters, um, continued on. Uh, but it seemed like also the early 90s was a period of new bands beginning. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm curious from your perspective what it was like. It was an awesome time in the early 90s because there were a lot of ska bands, but most often the bills were mixed and we'd be playing with punk bands, we'd be playing with hardcore bands or reggae bands, and all kinds of people came out to the shows, um, you know, punks, mods, you know, skins, and it was like a very uh, like exciting time in New York City because it was such... It was like an underground scene that was getting bigger and it was exciting. So, you know, that would be my, my recollections of it. Hmm. I agree. I agree. It, it was really exciting. It was underground, but totally hip. And you got to remember Giuliani did not get elected. He didn't take office till 93. And that's when the crackdown on nightlife started. And the, um, so up, up to that point, New York was a very open town and yeah, the, the mix of people, Rude boys dressed to the nines, skinheads, uh, mods, you know, punkers. Like, it was awesome. And it was totally under the radar of the mainstream. Yes, it was cool. Uh, media coverage or whatever. It was, it was just, it was completely underground scene. Shows were always packed. Yeah, the shows were packed. People danced their butts off. 
It was amazing. Where, where were the, you know, can you, can you name some of the main venues sure. that uh, you guys, we guys were playing at in those years? TGIF. Which was, a, uh, yeah, New Frontier, which New Frontier, was, at, yeah. which was at a TGI Fridays on Fifth Avenue and 13th Street that had formerly been the, not the Texas Roadhouse, but Lone Star. The, uh, the Lone Star Cafe, which was a blues venue where James Brown and people like that had played. Um, so that was a big one. The New Music Cafe on West Broadway and Canal. Yeah, Canal Street. Wetlands, of course. With, yeah, Wetlands. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Our first show in Wetlands was, I believe, August of 91, I think. Do you remember who else played that show? Skadanks, I think, but I'm not positive. I think it was the Skadanks. But you could look in the Wetlands book. Do you have that one, Aaron? No, I don't have that one. Oh, you got to get that, man. It's got all the ads for every show that ever happened at the Wetlands. So you can really see the whole history of New York ska. Ah. Since Wetlands was like a central venue for, for our scene back then. So the, the Scofflaws, Scottalites, uh, Toasters, these are bands that were more like came before and were influences. What bands did you consider to be contemporaries in the ska world? We grew up with the Slackers in many ways, and we were always on shows together. Yep. And in many ways, um, you know, we cut our teeth on the same shows. So definitely the Slackers would be in that mix. Bim Scala Bim from Boston. High Tasters. We playing with them quite early. Stubborn. Yeah. Stubborn All Stars. Skinnerbox. Skinnerbox. Yeah. Um, contemporaries. I mean, uh, I, when I think of exact contemporaries, I think of the Slackers, High Tasters. Insteps. What about the Insteps? Sure. The, I mean, they disappeared, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah they were playing for a while there. Scavuvi and the Epitones. Yeah. Well, they came later, though. They came later, yeah. yeah. They came later. They came later. We're talking about early 90s vintage. I mean, there's a few. Deal's Gone Bad is one. Um, Deal's Gone Bad. I-7. Inspector 7. I know we're missing some big ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it seems like, you know, I mean, you know, this the scene in this era, you know, not 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 quote-unquote traditional, but Definitely bands are more connected to the fashion and connected to the jazzer, jazzier elements of ska in, in, in the scene that you guys kind of come from in early 90s in New York. Does that feel does that feel true to you? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Because, I mean, you know, here, here, in Calif here in California, a little different. Yeah. No one thought of us as a jazz band back then, man. Like, no, nobody thought of us as a jazz band at that yeah. point. Like, that's been a later thing where they classify us as a, a weird jazz band. Like we, we no, we were just considered a regular old ska band along with all the other ska bands, just that we sounded very different. The word jazz never popped in my head at the time as a fan, as you know, but right. as an adult, like listening back to all those records, I'm like, oh, oh, these guys are obviously into jazz. Like that's obviously an element. <laughs> like it just yeah, absolutely. It's certainly true. It just yes. completely went over my head, uh, you know, in the '90s. That's understandable. I mean, I mean, Osho and I both we had a day job working in this office where at this place called Second Floor Music, and there was a rehearsal space attached to it. So we'd be sitting there doing office tasks, and in the room next door, people like Freddie Hubbard or Jackie McLean or uh, you know Art Blakey and people like that were rehearsing. So. We were very close to, to jazz, you know? I mean, 
and there's no way that doesn't rub off. Mm-hmm. We were total fans anyway, total jazz fans anyway, at least the horns, speaking for the horn section. I mean, you know, I was a rock fan too. And I mean, Andre has very wide ranging musical tastes. It seems like, you know, it, it, New York too has just more jazz in it than maybe like here in California. Like you, you can easily, yeah. you can easily not be part of the jazz scene or see the jazz scene at all if you have no interest in it. Like mm-hmm. it's not so intermingled, I guess. I guess you're right. I mean, yeah, New York's always been a jazz mecca since the 20s. So um, as horn players, you gravitate towards that sure. kind of music because that's the music that features the horns the most. You know, We were definitely very jazz influenced. But, but the point was that we didn't allow it to go completely over to the jazz side. We, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, the Scatolites were also extremely jazz influenced, obviously, right? Yeah. Uh, Tommy McCook was a jazz saxophone player. I mean, he's a Coltrane fanatic till his dying day. Um, so, I mean, it was a natural thing, but it's just we combined it with this with these guys from the punk scene, you know. And then, of course, we all got into metal, and you know, and that influenced us. And and uh, yeah, I mean, so it was really always supposed to be a combination of things. We were always trying to mix diverse influences together and come up with something original. So um, you, the first release is called Dem- Demon, but with the word demo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this was, uh, were, um, were Mike and Greg, were you in the band when that album was recorded and released? No. Okay. No. I, I joined the band based on hearing that demo that had just been recorded and they, Osho brought it into work and played it for me and said, uh, we want to get rid of our trombone player. And would you be interested? What did you think of it? I thought it was great. And then I, I mean, I thought it sounded great. And then I went down and went to two live shows and I was also impressed by that. And so I said, sure, I'll do this. But I, of course I was doing, I was freelancing in a lot of bands at the time. So I didn't, it wasn't like a huge life-changing decision at the time. It was just, yeah, yeah, you're... yeah, sure. This band sounds good. I'll play with you guys. Great. You know. Where, so Andre, where did, where did you record that demo? Oh, shit. Um, Coyote, right? Wasn't it Coyote? That's from Brooklyn, yeah. Coyote, where the Slackers recorded their first couple albums, I believe. Okay. Was it a, uh, was it a, was it a quick recording or was it a, a little longer process? Uh, it wasn't that long, to be quite honest, no. It seemed to, to just take the time that it took. It wasn't like, you know, we slaved over it or anything. Yeah, yeah. You, you got to get that demo out when you're starting out. You want to talk about quick? God bless Satan was recorded in, I believe, a total recorded and mixed in what, like four days or something. Really? Wow. Yeah. Let's. Uh, I do want to talk about that. Let's talk a little bit about some of the songs on that. Um, so the um, Bumblebee Tuna, your your infamous song Bumblebee Tuna. Now tell me if this is true. I read that um, you the band was playing a cover of Desmond Decker's 007. And then somebody in the band started singing that song over it. And this was the beginnings of that song. Sounds accurate, but I wasn't there. I don't remember that. Okay. That's what Brian, Brian has told me that Brian Martin, our, our keyboard player told me that, that that's how it happened. I, I mean, they were already playing it when I joined. Oh, I see. Okay. They, Yeah. But they would, we were still working out the arrangement when I joined. So. I mean, I was there, but I can't remember. <laughs> Were the arrangements always being tweaked with, or at least for a while being tweaked with? Yes. We had a great method of working in the studio where 
um, if anyone of the eight of us spoke up and said, you know, I don't think this is working, then that would be carefully considered. And if they were right, it would be admitted that they were right. There was no ego coming into it, which was really a refreshing way to work. Yeah. Um, so that's why the that's why those songs are so well crafted because we were not afraid to tell each other, hey, you know, this isn't that great. Like, let's do something different. You know, there's and no one took offense. So I always, in my mind, I always chalk it up to largely to that because we we just had such an open uh, collective kind of mentality in the, in those early days, and that's what we've tried to preserve in the later iterations of the band is that that same spirit of open collaboration and you know let's just let's just go for quality you know what i mean it's not about anyone's ego or spotlighting this person or that person it's about it's about the overall thing so that goes all the way back to our earliest uh you know attempts at making music we also um like to shed our tunes on the road before we record them this is one of the reasons why we have a limited amount of released music is that we want to get it right. So I don't think we've ever just gone into the studio saying, we got to make a record. Here's the songs. These things have been shed and deconstructed and reconstructed on the road over and over again to the point when we hit the studio, we're ready to just nail it and lay it down. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, the amount of work that goes into the writing and the structuring and everything, and, and then the, the tightness of the group, like, the tightness of the group always struck me as being like loose, but like still, still hitting the mark. Like, so you, you kind of have that mix of being tight and loose at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's a good observation. Like, what, what, what is your story about the uh, origins of Bumblebee Tuna? I don't remember the origins of that song, to be quite honest. I remember us doing it, and I remember um, uh, being at, uh, I think it was, the studio was called Giant and um, 14th Street. And just trying to hash through the song. And yeah, and at the time there was um, this other cat that came up with uh, uh, an idea for just the beginning of the song lyrically, and uh, which we used to do, and then we just scrapped it. It was a little silly. And uh, it's so long ago. Um, the, uh, the elaborate arrangement of the song on God Bless Satan was kind of done for that record. Like, we don't really perform that quite the long, as long of an arrangement live, and we never really did. Um, yeah, with the, the chorus, you know, just the girls and all that stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. A lot of that was inspiration in the studio to make it that over the top. Do you always get a positive response from that song live? Yes. Well, if we don't play it, we get a negative response. Yeah, I was going to say. Like that, you know? I feel like if you were somebody dragged to that show, dragged to a Mephiscopheles show, you would would find yourself singing along to that song. It's our most popular number. (laughs) A lot of of younger fans don't realize that it was actually a jingle. We came up with it. So uh, we have to school them on the 70s history of in defense of ska will return in a moment hey everybody it's barry from the what podcast hey it's russ hey it's brian and we are giving away two tickets to bonnaroo 2024 these are ga plus and they include camping russ 
How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Yeah, so I was in Mexico um, at a ska festival in 2019. And um, there was one of the opening bands. I can't even remember their name, but they weren't one of the bigger names. They played, I didn't, I, I wasn't quite sure. Like I recognized it, but I couldn't place it at first because they were playing Bumblebee Tuna, but they were, because it was in Spanish. And I was like, what is that song? And, I, and, then, I, and then they went to the chorus and they didn't sing English or Spanish. They just sang like, La 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 like that was how they handled the chorus, and that's when I that's when I was like, oh my god, that's that's Bumblebee Tuna. They're covering Bumblebee Tuna. Great cover. You guys would be honored. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, we'll be the judge of that. Could have played that a little tighter. So you said four days, four days of recording that and recording and mixing. Uh, well, it, it it was mixed later because we ended up getting another producer to do it. Uh, that's how we got Bill Laswell involved. Yeah, Bill Laswell. Uh, but so the so the so the recording session and the mixing session were were like months apart. But um, we always worked really fast. In, in, you know, we never had much budget. We we basically um, didn't get paid for the gigs for like a year plus to save up the money to do that album and when it came time to do it, we, you know, we always get in, would book the studio from the early morning till late at night and just, just hammer it out. And that, and that particular one, we were really ready because we'd been playing a lot of gigs for three years already. And so most of the songs were, had been well played. There was a couple new ones that were added, but we, we just went in and pretended like it, we were doing the live show at the local bar at, at Nightingale's bar or at Wetlands and just acted like that and that and recorded it live but with the ability to go back and overdub solos or whatever yeah we just banged it out in two days i think the the initial recording of it if memory serves i mean it's only 13 songs so two full days in the studio is plenty of time we were extremely well rehearsed so um and then mixing was another two days months later you did not have a label at all that when you recorded it it was just a self thing Right. And so you, Victor Rice produced during the recordings. That's right. Victor Rice produced the recording session and he did a great job because um, when we did connect with Bill Laswell and have Bill Laswell and Bob Musso mix it, they didn't ask us to re-record a single thing or add anything. It, all the tracks that Victor captured were great. Yeah. And then it was just a matter of, of, Laswell doing what he does, which is dial in an awesome bass sound and an awesome frequency range. And, and, um, and I mean, he really, we, he, I mean, the rough mixes that we gave to Bill Laswell uh, were not particularly impressive, but when he actually mixed it for us, I mean, it became what it is today, you know, the, the classic that it is. Today. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Victor, I think, like, you know, maybe maybe not everyone knows this, especially if they're not in the New York Scott scene, but he's a legend. Yeah. And um, 
you worked with him on this record. Did you work with him in other capacity as well, or just this one? He was our touring bass player mm. for some long tours in 96 and 97. He was, he was when Mike Bits went to grad, was going to grad school, Victor filled in and, um, and he did the, the long, one of the epically long tours we did with the Blue Meanies. Uh, he was on that one where we went coast to coast a lot. Of, and some of that ended up on the Blue Meanies live album um, uh, of the Blue Meanies performances anyway. Uh, and then he also went with us to Europe on our uh, first European tour in the spring of 96. Victor was with us. But he, on that one, he played uh, electric bass because taking the uh, upright overseas was prohibitive problem yeah but um yeah so he, he's been a friend of the band and a, a occasional sub and yeah a long time yeah who drove Mephiscopheles uh over in europe who drove yeah did you guys drive yourselves or did you hire a driver yeah we drove ourselves we had uh that was a wild tour because there was no cell phones or anything we did they gave us two vans and a book of maps <laughs> And a young female tour manager <laughs> that immediately that turned into a sword fight of who's going to sleep with the young tour manager. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was it was cr a crazy tour, and we went. It was five and a half weeks, and we went to the far reaches of Poland and you know the eastern Germany, and I mean, and the Euro. You know, there was no Euro that, at that time. There was no cell phone, so it was really we were really just thrown out there. And had to show up at the gigs and it was you know we went into great. it yeah we it was awesome uh i mean we went into it not knowing are we going to lose money i mean it's a very long time to be over there as a brand new band that playing you know mm -hmm. and, and but no in the end we came back everybody came back with a couple thousand bucks in their pocket i mean it was it was like it was an awesome experience it was amazing yeah. what type of venues were you playing on that tour was it just a weird assortment yeah definitely we were not hitting any of the festival circuit or anything. It was sure. too early in the year for that. Um, and I don't think those, I don't think those bookers even knew about us yet. You know, mm -hmm. um, we were, we were known because of our arrangement with moon records. They were not, we didn't have distribution in Europe, but, but moon was importing our records, exporting our records to Europe. Um, so that within the SCA network, people knew mm -hmm. about us okay. and they had God bless Satan, you know, we played a mix of venues though. We played, uh, somewhat large places, not not huge places, and then we played, you know, like the local bar kind of thing. Yeah, it was like everything from the local bar to the local arts, you know, state supported arts venue, which they had a lot of those. We played, we played on a boat. We played. That's right. We played on a boat. We we played in a movie, uh, a converted movie theater. Yeah. How many people were in the boat? It's a famous boat. A lot of two bands played that that night, so there were. Actually, quite a few people were on the book. Played a band called Skanken, and then um, it was kind of there. Uh, they set the show up, and then uh, so they invited a lot of people. Then it was great. And then they took us to a bar that they owned or co-owned or whatever, and spend the night getting fucked up there. <laughs> I mean, it, it's this boat. A lot of ska bands have played on this boat, even up until yeah, the thousands. Right. I think maybe now it's retired. It sailed away from port, uh -huh. but. Uh, this boat called the, it's in Rostock, Germany. It was based out of Rostock, Germany, which is kind of near Ham Hamburg. Okay. And uh, it was called the Stubnitz. The Stubnitz. The SS Stubnitz. Legendary German venue. Yes. Yes. 
everybody's played there. The Slackers have played it. The Toasters played it multiple times. And Mephiscopheles played there. I want to go back to your uh, tour with Blue Meanies. Have you toured with them multiple times or was it just this one tour? We did two national tours with Blue Meanies. Okay, so if there's the closest band I can think of to you guys is the Blue Meanies. Yeah. Not still different, obviously, but you know, your bands that are rooted in ska, but you have these other elements in it that are similar, I would say. There's some similarities in terms of the influences you guys are putting in, but um, also, you know, different. Yeah, they, they were definitely one of the, one of the um, bands that we really enjoyed touring with. Yeah. Because it was, uh, it was a great clash of, uh, of styles and, and uh, egos, too, because we just wanted to, you know, outdo each other each night we played. And uh, it great. It just raised everyone's game. It was fantastic. Really, really enjoyable tours. Yeah. Great people, too. Yeah. So, yeah. What, any, anything you remember from that tour in particular? It's just the, the shows themselves. I mean, the, 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 the idea that we we're trying to outdo each other on stage every single night and that sometimes they prevailed, sometimes we did, you know, but it was... Uh, it was like the epitome of like competition is healthy, you know? Yeah, it was just great. It was awesome. Which and member of the Blue Meanies is the most fun to hang out with? <laughs> huh, back then, uh, maybe Chaz. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Billy was always a blast. They were all pretty cool to hang out with. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, let, let's go back to this. So uh, Bill Laswell is, um, mixes your record. First off, could you tell people who Bill Laswell is? I mean, obviously he's he's very well known, but maybe not to Scott bands. Well, he's he's sort of a super producer, bass player, uh, band leader. Uh, you know, largely associated with the avant-garde scene in New York City, but he also, um, did, you know, made an album for Motorhead. He made it. He's uh, did a dub album of Bob Marley. He did a dub album of Miles Davis, electric stuff. I mean, he's he's got incredible ears. And if you read the, uh, you know, Mark Wasserman's book. Yeah, um, yeah, I read it, yeah. God Boom, right? Yeah, there's some quotes from Laswell in there about God Bless Satan, where he says, well, number one, that the reason he agreed to do the record was because he was intrigued by the satanic ska angle. But then he also said it was right up his alley because what Laswell was into was um, bringing the the huge base of reggae of dub reggae and combining it with metal or or you know other genres. Mm -hmm. In other words, so he applied that approach to us, and it fit perfectly like a glove. Yeah. How did you connect with him? Like that's my first question. How did you connect with him? We connected with him through a high school buddy of mine, uh, Bill McKinney, who later played in Mephiscopheles and is on our third album, Mighty Whitey. Um, Bill is a guitar player, and he was doing a project that Laswell was producing, which was for the uh, Parliament Funkadelic guitarist, Michael Hampton. Mm. And Michael Hampton had kind of taken Bill under his wing, and they were making this album. And Bill got friendly with Bill Laswell's office, with his office staff, with his secretary and so forth. And so he said, he came to me and said, and Bill was always a Mephiscopheles fan and a big supporter of the band. And um, he came to me and said, uh, 
listen, I want to give Laswell's people your tape, your rough mixes, and see if they'll do it for if if they'd be interested in working with you. And of course, we were like, sure, go ahead, because we were all we had was these rough mixes that didn't sound too good, and we weren't sure how to how to you know complete this record. And um, so, sure enough, like he gave he gave it to Laswell. Laswell uh, responded and said, "I'll do it for free. I'll mix it for free." And and he explains this in in Wasserman's book as well, where he says that he had a a policy of doing that for certain bands that caught his ear. He would he would offer to mix them for free or produce them for free because he was sure that this would be the only way this band would yeah you know get their just desserts sonically and and you know and be able to to make a a, a run for it in the marketplace you know um so he did it out of the goodness of his heart and it happened over two a two-day session robert musso the great uh who, who is a great producer in his own right he produced murphy's laws first couple albums and a, a bunch of other uh, classic punk albums um so he was the engineer for laswell but laswell was the guy that set the sounds and michael our original drummer had a few notes on what he wanted certain sounds certain songs to sound like and so on and he gave these notes to laswell and laswell it was pretty minimal but laswell it was enough to give him something to go on and and it just it turned out better than we ever imagined and then we spared no expense on the mastering either. We we went to, we spent three thousand bucks to get it mastered by Howie Weinberg. I don't know, does that is that name ring? He's probably retired by now, but this was like the guy who had mastered all the hit records up, up to that time. Yeah, mastering is very very important part of the process. Very important, yes. Yeah. And so, and so yeah, so we spared no expense, and that was kind of our attitude in the early days. We were like we were we were just scraping by, you know, we were all living very cheaply in manhattan which you could do back then but when it came to the band we were like we're going to the best studio we can afford we're going to get the best master you know we know this guy masters hits we're going to get him even if even if we have to work 30 gigs for free you know to pay for it that was kind of our attitude back then it was all for one one for all uh for real it sounds good it's a good sounding record absolutely thank you i mean aside from the actual music i mean it, I mean, the music's good too. I'm just saying the actual recording and mixing is great. A lot of that's down to Laswell. I mean, he really heard the music inside what we're doing and brought it out. Yeah. So um, you finished, you mastered it, and then you released it yourself, right? Yes. Now, as I understand it, you self-release it, you're touring, you're kind of building a name for yourself. It's getting out there. You're selling copies in this sort of DIY realm. Is that correct? Yes. Um, are you just selling records, you know, at shows or how, how is this album getting out? Just at shows, but also through uh, Bucket, uh, Rob Hingley um, and Moon Records distributing it for us uh, to their network of models. When does that happen? Because you release it and then at some point you make a relationship, you make a deal with him that it's yeah so how, how when does that happen well from early on like even when we were pressing it ourselves like literally going to the pressing plant and picking up the you know boxes of cds ourselves uh bucket was buying them from us and then putting them into his distribution network i see okay i mean because i always i mean i didn't know when i got the record i just assumed i was buying a, a moon records album i didn't know that 
you know, I didn't understand the nuance of the deal. You know what I mean? Well, I'm get, I'm get, I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that. It's like, like, so originally we were pressing it ourselves on our own label and everything like that. And then as we got more in demand on the road, we needed to come up with a solution. And it was basically a choice, either start our own record label for, for real, like open an office and have someone filling orders and stuff like that, or do a production distribution deal with Moon. In other words, let Moon manufacture this thing under its own imprint, under license from us and distribute it. And it was a big debate within the band, you know, uh, yeah. because we were making a massive profit um, pressing it ourselves, quite frankly. Sure, yeah. But, you know, but the thing was that that Bucket um, <clears throat> was also giving us, you know, triple the industry standard. In other words, we were getting, instead of getting a dollar a record, as most labels were doing, he would give us $3 a record. Well, three is still a lot less than $9 a record, sure. you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we, the fact is the road was calling and, and the, we had to be out of town a lot. And so it was like, so we, so we took a band vote and we voted to, to let Bucket lease the master for one year. And, and then he extended, we extended it for another year, but um, that, yeah, that's, and then that was the basis for future deals with him, like for maximum perversion, the same thing. Like he, he actually gave us an advance on that one and we, but but it was still just the lease deal to him like we never we own all our masters that we've ever made oh, we've okay. never the only time we ever sold a master outright was for the third album and we ended up getting it back because we yeah. lost the deal so um so yeah so so basically we ended up doing a production distribution deal with moon is the the long and short of it and that allowed us to get the record out there to get product when we needed it to be able to sell on the road on the merch table and it got us from a to b as far as becoming a a live band that was in demand and was able to uh fulfill you know the fans expectations basically it, it definitely seemed like one of the more um popular moon releases at the time it it was bucket still tells me that to this day that it's the second biggest selling record ever on moon or something like that oh yeah what's the first I think it's one of the early Toasters records that he just keeps repressing. Also, a little known fact is that we were the first, uh, I believe, the. I mean, I'm not sure of this myself, but I read it from another critic wrote it. <laughs> uh, this guy, Dave Thompson, wrote that um, we were the first third wave band and certainly the first moon band to get on MTV in 95. And then... That's probably true. Yeah. So we're talking about Doomsday, the Doomsday video, right? Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so tell us a little bit about the filming of that video. Again, a completely independent project. We were we were distributing our album through Moon at that time, but Moon had nothing to do with the making of that video. Um, they didn't give us any money for it or anything. We again, we we would play and save the money to to do these things to advance the band. We we engaged a guy who was a friend of Mike's, I believe. A friend of Michael Reich. He was, he was a yeah, he was a uh, filmmaker and. Uh... Um, we got him to agree to be part of, you know, the project of making this video. And so, uh, I think we spent about $3,000 on the video. Okay. Shot on film. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's basically it. We contracted this guy to do it and he did. Yeah. And so we shot it at Wetlands and at Limelight primarily. Oh, but also he came to where we would hang out at Cherry Tavern and yeah, that's right. Yeah, he came down to the East Village, which 
was the band stomping grounds at the time and and uh filmed us in our natural habitat hanging out at the bar with all the skinheads and stuff so it was, it was a good uh, good document of that time we'll be right back after this hey everybody it's barry from the what podcast hey it's russ hey it's brian and we are giving away two tickets to bonnaroo 2024 these are ga plus and they include camping russ how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. The uh, the, the devil or demon outfit, however you want to look at it. Uh, who, who made that? Where'd that come from? That's all Andre. Andre used to dress up a lot. Yeah. For big shows or I don't, yeah, I guess I don't remember uh, at that show I saw if uh, he was dressed up like that, but that was just uh, how you dressed up. It's- like, for example, like the last tour, a gig of a tour when we have a big homecoming show in New York or, you know, something like that, or if we're we're playing with some huge band, you know, then you give the audience a little something extra, you know, in terms of the show. It's all to make it, a, oh, yeah, to make it a special event, basically, you know. You can ins- say if this is true or not, but, well, this is in Mark's book, Um New York Times interviewed Michael. Is this, is it pronounced it Michael, your drummer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, because of that article, he called up MTV and said, look at this article. You should play my video, Doomsday. And they were like, okay. Uh, it wasn't, it was an even better story than that. He actually got into M- the MTV offices with a copy of the video and, and got it into the right person's hands right before a meeting. He, he went in person? I think so. Wow. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I could be wrong, but I, I seem to remember him telling me that story of how he actually got in there and, and, uh, you know, got the video to the right person at the right time. That's how it worked back then. You know, when there was no internet or anything, you had to get creative. If you wanted your package to stand out from other people's, uh, stuff, like, you know, you had to, um, you had to come up with ideas like that. You had to be cheeky and just like push your way in sometimes. Yeah. To get to the front of the line, you know, it, it, it was just a whole different time. It's completely different time. Did uh, did the video get played very often, or was it just a few times? No, it got in rotation actually, and it got on the soundtrack of the Real World and a, a Spring Break and all, you know stuff like that. Huh. Um, no, they were pretty. They were pretty high on the video. They, yeah, you know, it was on 120 minutes, of course. That everybody knows where it was introduced by Allison Chains, and that it was introduced by uh, Tim Armstrong. Tim Armstrong, yeah, but. But after that, it, they they put it in rotation actually, so it was pretty flattering for us and pretty exciting. I mean, that's when we started to really take off and get recognized on the street and stuff like that. Yeah, so it wasn't, it was, but it wasn't quite at the level of like um, some of the bigger ska hits, like you know, Time Bomb or anything like that. But it was. Well, it was way before that. It was before that. Yeah, it was like, before that. Yeah. Oh wow! But it was not as big as that. But yeah, it was before that. I think, I mean, I mean, not to diminish what Rancid did. I mean, like they had, they did have some Scott videos out by that point. I think they had Roots Radicals or whatever was out by that point or something. But, but uh, we were pretty early in the game. You know, that gets, that, that often gets overlooked, like how early we were and that we also, when we, and Brian, our keyboardist points this out in the book, um, that after we, when we went out there and started touring around, 
then other it seemed like other bands started to loosen up and say oh we can be ourselves you know we don't have to be a copy of the toasters anymore we can we can be a little more expressive i mean i don't, I don't know mm-hmm. if we really triggered that or not but it kind of seemed like it at the time yeah i mean you're definitely one of the bands that you can point to from that era that is very has a unique everything unique about you guys yeah and we weren't trying to be goofy like a lot of bands from that era were quite goofy you know what i mean and even today, even now, or in the 2000s, many, many ska bands take the goofy route, you know, funny clothes and silly, silly, silly attitudes and stuff. And, and to us, that's anathema to what ska's about. I mean, that's the scatolites wouldn't become dead doing stuff like that. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, we, we were different, but an odd, certainly odd and unusual, but, but. There was like, like you said in the beginning of this interview, there was like a serious edge to it. That that's what make make people go like, wait a minute, what the hell is this? You know. <laughs> yeah, for us, it's always been about the music. You know, the music has always come first, and everything else comes second. So, you know, when we come together and make music, and the fans are grooving with it, you know, and everything's hitting a high, you know, it can't feel any better. And so that's why we keep doing it. So you before we started recording, you guys mentioned a um, that you you tour in a in a, a church bus. That's correct. And that okay. So when when did you get the church bus? Let's say uh, just about the story of our vehicles. Uh, in 2018, <laughs> we went on tour of Streetlight Manifesto, and we bought ourselves an RV that didn't make it to one show. <laughs> now, we made it to all the shows. You know, we got in a minivan, we left that thing on the side of the road. Um, but we got smarter about our vehicles uh, since then. And our, our guitar player, Adam, is a super mechanic. So it's actually his bus. It's a school bus, short bus. Fit all of our gear, all of our merch, and seven dudes all into this school bus. Um, but we named it the church bus because it seemed appropriate. Sure. And um, gets us everywhere we got to go. It just took us all over the U.S. this past two weeks, Texas through New Orleans and back. And the church bus is our ride. It's fantastic. It's great. It doesn't go very fast. What's what's the top speed on the church bus? Yes, yeah, pushing 70 is going to make Six, it rumble. 66.6 miles per hour. <laughs> yes, so yeah, that's that. what it is. Is it somebody, you know, if, if people see you arrive, it's a good arrival, right? Like there's there's the church bus. I love this bus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they love it. They love it. We even have church bus stickers we sell at the merch stand. Yeah. Do you? <laughs> Yeah. What? Okay. Let's let's go through some of the other vehicles in the in the band's history. What else have you taken on tour? Well, we had the the one bits just mentioned that met a fiery demise. The uh, <laughs> caught on fire. <laughs> we had to abandon it. Uh, There's been a couple of those though. Yeah, that's right. We had another RV in the '90s, the one that we did all those long tours with the Blue Meanies in, and that one also caught on fire. <laughs> oh, uh, not the engine, mind you, but the actual body part that we were riding in. How did it catch on fire? Wait. Yeah. Well, it was two different reasons. Like the, <laughs> the the second one, it was a broken, apparently it was a broken wheel bearing on one of the dualies in the back. And so the tire was just scraping the, the freeway for miles and then it ignited. And uh, we smelled it. We heard the noise and we said, what the hell is that? And, and uh, our sax player at the time who was driving fortunately drove us to a large truck stop plaza where there was a lot of fire extinguishers and some bystanders saw us coming in there and immediately grabbed fire extinguishers, started spraying <laughs> our vehicle. 
And so we jumped out and ran away, but it was, that was a close one. Um, if we had just pulled to the side of the road, I'm quite sure the whole thing would have burned. Yeah. yeah. There would have been no way to put out the fire. So we were very fortunate that our, the guy driving took us to this place where there's plenty of fire extinguishers. But anyway, um, the one before that was a similar RV and that one, I don't know what caused it. Maybe something with the exhaust system, I guess, but it, like basically the, the wall caught on fire smoke coming, started coming into the, to the thing. And we, we, actually bashed a hole in the wall and poured beers oh, into beer. <laughs> we poured like a 12 pack into <laughs> the, the wall of the beer. rv and put and kept going it just kept while we were driving and just put out the fire that way and then when we returned the vehicle to the guy we'd been renting it from he wouldn't let us have it back so he thought we'd abused it <laughs> it smelled like beer back there and one of them also had an engine that got totally fucked up that was the same one. Yep, we had to replace the engine at one point. Oh, that was the one when uh, we were in uh, Albany or whatever the horn. The, the mallard. Yeah, we blew the engine in Portland, Oregon, and and had to rent a vehicle, go all the way down to San Diego <laughs> or Las Vegas, I forget. And then we had to we did a fifty eight hour round trip to go pick up the the fixed RV. It was insane. Literally 58 hours not getting out of the van. Oh, man. Absolutely nuts. Um, I never miss a show. But we didn't miss a show. That's right. We did not miss a show. (laughs) And then there was one other vehicle before that, the first vehicle we ever bought, which was a small, it's kind of like the church bus, actually, similar size and layout. And that one lasted a couple of years. It was a good vehicle. But unfortunately, we had a little accident, so... What happened with the accident? Yeah, I was the one driving actually in like, we were in Iowa, but the hilly part of Iowa. Mm-hmm. And I was, it was a two lane road and I was stuck behind a truck forever and ever. And finally I saw daylight and I thought I could pass. But as it happened, I passed on a crossroads and the guy decided to turn left while I was passing <laughs> him. <laughs> so we got knocked off the road, but we didn't, we didn't flip or topple over. Uh, but uh, we all survived. Everything was fine. The insurance covered it, but um, but the vehicle was never quite the same again. Yeah. So drove it for a little while longer, and then we had to get rid of it. So after uh, God bless Satan, um, there's a you know between that album and Max Maximum Perversion, there's some a bit of lineup changes, right? Um, just the drummer, I believe. Oh, is it just just a drummer? Okay. The the record's a little a little different direction. I, I'm I'm curious if you could uh, speak on that at all. Well, essentially, I mean, so oversimplify it. Like the first record, a lot of those songs were composed by the rhythm section, mm-hmm. and were dated to the early days of the band. And then we had been we were on the road having a wonderful time for three years almost, and then we realized, oh my god, we need to come out with a second album. We're we're late, you know, uh, thinking about this. And so it was like, okay, who's got songs? And it was the horn players that time, for the most part, that that came up with the music. So that's why it's a totally different flavor. And also the replacement of the original drummer, Michael, with Wayne Dutton, my good friend who I've known since high school. You know, obviously Wayne brings a totally different sound and a different vibe and has been doing it in the band since then, since 97, 96, really. Wayne has been our drummer ever since the second album. 
Um, and he's an, a tremendous drummer. I mean, incredible drummer. Did Wayne play in any other bands before Methoscopolis? Not ska bands, but tons of other kinds of bands. Like what type of music? Um, well, I personally played in um, a jazz quartet with Wayne. And also I played in like a, like a modern rock band with Wayne. So we had a lot of musical history um, and a lot of different musical styles. And you can kind of hear that in Mephiscopheles as well, you know, bring a lot of different kind of beats, different kind of rhythms. And Wayne really drives that. Totally. It makes such a difference when you have a drummer that can literally play anything you can imagine. I mean, you, it's not, he's not limited in any way. So, I mean, you can just imagine for guys who are writing music for this band, that's, that's heaven. Yeah, I can, it's interesting that you say that the more more horn written because you can hear is it seems like a lot more horns going on too in the in those uh, on maximum perversion. Yeah, I mean, as a result, the album flopped horribly when it came out. I mean, it's it's seen as a classic now, but when it came out, everybody was expecting more God bless Satan style stuff, and obviously we didn't deliver that. So um, that album took a good ten. 10 15 years for the public to accept it what about mighty whitey how did that one do similar thing but that but that was we that one didn't really get a chance because unfortunately the deal got screwed up early on we had a problem and the album got pulled from shelves so it really we didn't really get a chance to see how far it went i mean it debuted at number 198 on the billboard chart or whatever on the modern rock chart uh you know, it looked like it was going places, but then unfortunately we got hit with a lawsuit that, and the label got hit with a lawsuit also. And, and the whole thing just fell apart. Was that not a moon release? Mighty Whitey? No, not at all. No, we, uh, we actually recorded by, of all people, Walter Yetnikoff, the famous CBS Sony executive, oh. um, the guy who masterminded Bruce Springsteen's career and Michael Jackson's career. <laughs> if you can believe this, <laughs> I'm serious. He, he wanted and he had he was trying to come out of retirement he had he had retired for a while because he had a big scandal and uh and some other personal issues and he had retired from the business and he decided he wanted to come back and so he went around and signed a bunch of bands and he signed us he signed the kinks he signed the super suckers <laughs> and the scorpions i mean this was gonna be the label <laughs> it sounds crazy right but it's just 100 true and in the end what ended up happening is is yetnikov got cold feet he said you know what i guess i don't really want to get back in the music business i already did my thing and so then our contract got sold to uh koch records which is now yeah. which became e1 music and is now called something else i forget but it's a big they're a big player you know they're tantamount to a major label and and so it came out on Koch and all that was good and it got wide distribution and it, you know like I said it was getting service to radio and everything was looking great we had a, a one we had an excellent contract you know guaranteeing us all sorts of perks and money and and everything but unfortunately we got hit with a, a multi-million dollar lawsuit and that just torpedoed the whole thing and 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 that's directly what led to our hiatus for 10 plus years what was the lawsuit over? It was over. It was our trumpet player, and he was upset uh, because he—it was—it's too much to get into, to be honest. But gotcha. But it had to do with him basically exploiting uh, the part, the 
partnership law. We had a partnership structure, which is really not, hey, kids, don't make your band a partnership, okay? <laughs> don't do it. It's very, it gives you a big Achilles heel if one of the partners wants to take the whole thing down. And that's what he did. He, he was very spiteful, and he decided, well, if I'm not going to be in this band, then no one can be in the band. And, and we tried to play through it and just continue. We, we had no shortage of bookings. We were very popular. Even while the third wave was crashing, we were doing, we were kind of picking up the Boston's crowd at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and we were doing quite well, but, um, but when the label pulled the rug out from under us, it, that was it because we had going against our ordinary principles, which are not to sell our masters to somebody or put ourselves in someone else's care. Yeah. We did it this time because the amount of money was correct and the contract was correct. So we did it, but in the end we got burned because um once the lawsuit hit the label didn't want to know us they didn't want to take our calls and we were out on our own once again only without that independent you know freedom that we had before so it was we were hindered and ultimately andre and i together made the decision like look this this is getting we were losing too much money and it was just impossible to continue basically now have we second guessed that decision ten thousand times since then yes of course but at the time, it was it was a very dark uh, picture for Mephiscopheles. You know, one of our own had had basically tried to take us down and and ultimately succeeded. We tried to play through it, we just couldn't. Yeah, band dynamics are so intense, and uh, yeah, they could be very hurtful when they go sour. Well, when you're ten years in, you know, and everyone's only making less than ten thousand a year from it, yeah. you know, because the overhead is so damn high when you're when you're touring with eight guys. Um people start to want answers and they want to say like, okay, I should be more successful. The band should be more successful. I should be getting paid more, you know, and stuff like that. And all that stuff is negative and detrimental to a band. So even though we had all our ducks in a row, we were poised to absolutely succeed on a, on a higher level than ever before. It, that's one thing to know that, but it's another thing to convince other people of it when they're already kind of fed up and, you know, getting tired of, tired of their wives picking on them about it or their job saying, hey, come on, you can't keep going on tour. You know? So it, it's a natural thing, you know. Was there any song or songs that were sort of either doing well or poised to do well from that record? Well, we never got the chance, actually. The single was supposed to be Social Theory, Spoonful of Sugar, you know that one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was supposed to be the single. We had a large video budget written into the contract. And so that was going to be the thing. That was going to be the next order of business, you know, was uh-huh. that single and make this video. But once the lawsuit hit, it was like we were poison. We were absolute poison. No one wanted to deal with us, let alone our own label, you know. Did you, did you have a video uh, idea in mind for that song? I don't recall, honestly. But Okay. We really never got even to that stage. I mean, we got to, we, we, got, go that far. we got as far as booking a national tour. We did one national tour as a Koch Records artist, and we had a, a, a U.S. tour and a Europe tour booked, and that's when the bottom just fell out. So, it, you know, it's just one of those things. I mean, it's, it's a very tough business, you know, and if things don't go go perfect, a lot can go wrong. So, um, but the. But the bright side of this is that we came back. We we persevered. Yeah. We didn't let this uh, make us become bitter or say, "Oh, you know, screw this band." We, we said, "No, we cannot go out like that. This is this music is too good. This concept is too good. 
the band is too good to let one guy, you know, who has a stomach ache, like take us down, you know? So we stuck to our guns and I'm so glad we did. What was your first show back? We did a cruise around Manhattan with Inspector Seven. That was our, that was really for the hardcore fans, you know, really knew, loved both, both of those bands. Um, and then after that, the offers just started coming in. We got the offer for Riot Fest very shortly after that. Had you been talking about reforming for a while or tell me a little bit about that and what, what made you decide to finally give it a go? We always wanted to reform. We always wanted to, yeah, we always wanted to reform. I mean, uh, we kept talking about it, Greg and I, for years, for a decade. Basically, basically after everything shut down, we, we were talking about it because we were like uh, pissed enough to be like, you know, at the time, of course, you, you sort of want to shut it down, but you, you couldn't really because you like, as Greg already mentioned, you know, concept's great, the, the music's great, the players are, are great. So we were just like, well, you know, let's just let it uh, float for a bit and uh, we'll do other things. And we just kept talking about it and talking about it and talking about it until finally we were like, all right, it's time to do it. I mean, we did other things. We did, other, you know, musical things, but we were like, it's time to do this shit now. So. Yeah, we, we, we stayed busy and active as musicians the whole time. But, but what really allowed the band to come back was what, getting rid of that lawsuit. We were able to convince uh, the person who knew us to just that, look, man, this is useless and it's holding everything back. And then he eventually saw the light and, and withdrew the lawsuit, yep. which is what you have to do when you live in New York, because it's in California, if you don't prosecute something, it's gone after five years. But in New York, it just hangs around and hangs around and hangs around. Oh, so you really wow. You need the person to actually physically like go there and to the court and withdraw the lawsuit. And we act, eventually we got him to actually do that. And that, and, yeah. and then once we did that, it was like everything just opened up again. It was like, we never left. I mean, it was kind of uncanny in that way. Any, any show. And since you've been back that you feel like is your best, you know, you know, show in this, in this modern era. No, there've been too many of them. Yeah. This last tour, the show in Charlotte, you know, which was like on Friday night this last week, just fucking wrecked you know it was everyone had their face blown off it was so good you know and so <laughs> another standout to me was um this this is not croydon fest too right yes that was that was a lot of fun but then we also had we also had this really great shows when we um uh the street light run mm -hmm. we had some amazing shows there too so yeah that there were a lot of people who had never seen us before, so we gained a lot of new fans there. But we also had a lot of people who had been waiting to see us for yeah, 25, cool. 30 years and finally got a chance. So, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun there. Um, and especially on this last run, this last run, there were quite a few people who were like, okay, bucket list scratch. <laughs> quite a few there, just like bucket list. Heard about you guys. My older this, my older brother, sister, whatever, gave me this. Never thought I'd ever see you guys. Couldn't believe you guys are back playing. I can scratch it off now. It was amazing. It was great. It was great. And one of one of the one of the, the cooler things talking about you know the mix of the styles and all that shit. What's really good about that um, is that you know we keep getting um, well even since we came back and did those big streetlight tours, we keep getting people who you know they never seen us and they're not even into you know this type of music that are just totally blown away, and that's always cool. You know, a lot of people who are like into metal or whatever <clears throat> are totally blown away by the band. Yeah. In Charlotte, that show Bits was talking about, we played with this uh, this metal, really great metal band called Violent Life, Violent Death. 
<laughs> yeah. and, and they said, they said, you know, we grew up listening to Mephiscopheles. It's an honor to play with these guys. <laughs> like, you know, it's wild. I, I had the same thing from the dudes in uh, Circus Survive when I was uh, with the Toasters and playing with them. Like, they were like, yeah, we all grew up listening to Mephiscopheles. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. But they don't sound anything like Mephiscopheles. No. <laughs> what they're doing, you know. But, yeah, so it's, I mean, I always kind of say, like, you can put us in front of 100 people, like, 20 of them will like us. And you, there's no predicting who those 20 will be. You know, 20, 20 yeah. 25 people. You don't know who they who they're gonna be. You can't you can't tell. They could be, you know, the Scott a lot of Scott fans don't like us, you know. But um but uh it you just can't tell. It's we just appeal to a certain swath of the population, but it could be anybody, you know. So yeah. it's it's this thing is really ripe to be uh you know, to go on TV or something where we can reach a lot of people at once because I think a lot of people are gonna dig it, quite frankly. Yeah. Especially the way the band's sounding now. I mean, we are we are taking care of business. Let me tell you, you got to come check us out when we, we come to your neck of the woods. Yeah, please come to California. Yeah, we will. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific indefensive ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying, ska now more than ever. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.